Well, good afternoon. Welcome to the second session. I've got bad news, good news, and make of it what you will news. The bad news is you're going to have to deal with yet another accent because I'm not Scottish. Just like the guy in the back there. The good news is I'm not from Northern Ireland. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. And the other one is you guys are the first to hear this presentation other than my colleagues in the office. Now that could go the good way or the bad way. We'll try to do our best. So I'm gonna to talk to you today about formidable flood, clearly Noah's flood, uh, a deluge of evidence. It's gonna be an interesting one because I had to cut down information because there's a lot to say. So we're just gonna to touch on a number of topics today. But when you talk about floods and Noah's flood in particular, Creationists get different questions from different people, and among those questions might be, was it not just a local flood in the Mesopotamian Valley, some people say? Where did all the water come from? And where did all the water go? Is the Bible the only source that talks about a global flood? Well, these questions hopefully I will answer throughout my presentation, and maybe even more so. But rock layers, uh, my colleague already talked about it, and fossils, do they really prove millions of years? That is a question. Because in these rock layers, we do find evidence of dead things. Fossils are typically dead things, or traces of things that are no longer alive today. But these things are clearly full of death. There's evidence of killing and pain because there is tooth marks in dinosaur bones from other dinosaurs, for instance. We have found disease in bones, fossil bones, such as cancer, but others too. So have these bad things been around before, long before mankind sinned? If they are really, truly millions of years old, these things, and Adam and Eve didn't live then, clearly, then these things are before Adam? Can that be? Is that correct? Is this what the Bible teaches? Same picture as... Phil showed, but it's a very important one. A process of millions of years of death somehow lead to mankind at the end? Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, I'm going to be talking about that as well. But I want to start with a, a little plug for a creation magazine that has been going for 40, uh, 44 years, has been going into over 100 countries, and it is written in the English language, not in the Northern Irish language, so you'll be able to understand it. It actually is also translated in a few other languages, for instance, Finnish and Hungarian. Um, in a few moments, Philip will pass around yet another set of clipboards. It's a Creation Magazine subscription, clearly, totally voluntarily. We do recommend it, as Phil's already done, because it's a family magazine. It's not just for your own interest. You could read it with the whole family. We aim to write all the articles for grade 10 and below. So I think most people, and many children, as I will give you a testimony, can understand it. So there's article, articles about animals and their wonderful design features, such as bats knowing the speed of sound, not learning it as they learn to fly. They know it. It's programmed into their genes. Another one, we speak about biblical things, biblical personal uh, beings, Adam. This is one that Philip and I wrote together. Um, five things you may not know about Adam. Well, we've mentioned Adam already today, but there are a number of things that perhaps are not so clear, and uh, this would be an interesting article to learn up on. This is one of my favorites. This was a book review written by an evolutionist, and he's a well-accomplished scientist, um, and he wrote in that book many things, but one of the things that he said is they have found that babies can learn grammar even when they're already in the womb. So when babies are still in the womb, provided they are spoken to, their brain is already wiring things up to understand the grammar of the language that is spoken to it. The author of the book credited evolution. I stand in awe for the creator who programmed and made that. 
Now, the magazines sometimes give wonderful testimonies. Somebody becoming a Christian, for instance. Creation magazine and the CMI DVDs were instrumental in my conversion from a keen evolutionist and Carl Sagan fan to a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. Others not only read the magazine, but use it as an evangelism tool. Friends, last week I purchased 200 magazines for street outreach. This last Thursday, we heard of a man who has believed and is about to be baptized. What a marvelous handpiece is the Creation magazine and how beautifully it paves the way for the gospel there and then on the street. You see, every Creation magazine spends about half a page on explaining what the gospel is and how you can be saved, plus all the articles, of course, as well. So it is really a truly glorifying Jesus magazine and indeed. And it's a family magazine, so my granddaughter, who's in grade 8, reads your magazine from cover to cover, says Emily. Now, we're in the 21st century, so what would we be if there wasn't a digital edition or option as well? Uh, for an additional £3 per year, can you read it up to five different devices? So laptop, smartphone, tablet, desktop. I can't even think of five. Anyway, um, this is what the sign-up form looks like that you'll be seeing in your hands in about 20 to 30 seconds. But I want to give you a little treat. If you sign up for the magazine today or... If you already subscribe and you want to add another year or two to your existing subscription, see, we don't only give gifts to the new customers, also to our existing clientele. You can walk out with the back issue, with the penny pad on the front. If you sign up for two years, you get the back issue, and you can choose from either the DVD, which gospel, which you may have seen on the book table, or you can get a download file it's called Elephants in the Room. And if you want that, you just simply write the word elephants somewhere on the sign-up sheet. So, Philip, if you want to pass around the clipboards, um, if you want to sign up, fill in your details clearly. If not, pass it on to your neighbor, and Phil will collect them at the back of the hall. Right. Creation.com is a go-to place where 24-7 you can find stuff on all sorts of things. And we have... Our articles are divided in a number of ways by topic. So you, there is a topic of global flood, which I'm going to be talking about tonight. But if you want to, uh, Phil mentioned carbon dating, carbon-14 dating, there is a topic on that and many others. So use our website to your advantage. Send other people to our website as well, because many people that have questions that are truly seeking are a bit hesitant to step into a church perhaps, uh, and they may prefer to do an anonymous search of their querying questions first to try and see what Christians have to say. So the website can be used in many different ways. Okay, enough of the promos. On with the talk. The contents roughly of today's presentation will be an introduction to floods, starting from what we understand on a local scale, moving on to Noah's flood by using God's word and what it says about it. Something about fleeing or swimming... It's a bit cryptical. You'll have to wait to see what that means. And then water, water everywhere. There are accounts from all over the world about big, giant floods. Um, I'm going to have one or two slides on Noah's Ark. Uh, that was already covered this earlier today. Sedimentary layers around the globe. So those are layers laid down, sedimentary, laid down by water. And we're going to talk about erosion by water. Water is a powerful thing and it can erode and then we'll end with some conclusions now I've already said to you that I'm uh, another foreign accent you have to deal with I'm from the Netherlands this is the map of the country that I live in and did you know that about 25% of my home country is below sea level so you can see that roughly on the west coast there that red ring now in 1953 on the night of the 31st of January Disaster struck. There was a big flood. Um, some say it was the Netherlands' own fault by having such a large part of the country below sea level. But most of that 25% that you saw there in the first map was actually not flooded. No, what was flooded was the map on the bottom left of the screen. Now, terrible as this flood was in 1953, only... And I do that on purpose because every life is one too many. Only about 2,500 people died. So on the grand scheme of things, this was really just a small flood. 
Let's go a little bit further afield. I think many of you might remember the Boxing Day 2004 tsunami caused by an earthquake west of Sumatra. That Sumatra is part of Indonesia. And um, with almost 100 times as many deaths as the flood that we just saw in 1953. So this world map here on the bottom right shows us the vast extent of that earthquake just west of Sumatra and the consequences all over the earth. Let me explain to you what the colors mean that you see on this map. Red is severe damage and lots of loss of life. Orange means minor damage and some loss of life. Yellow, so particularly Australia and Madagascar, is some damage, no loss of life. And then blue, which is large parts of the world, countries with lost citizens that were abroad. Um, you can see it affected many countries around the world, and the death toll was a lot higher. Now, what about biblical proportions? We know about floods, don't we? After all, we are the experts of planet Earth. But what about beyond planet Earth? Here you see a depiction of Mars, planet Mars, and apparently there was a flood of biblical proportions on Mars. Let's read this quote. NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has found evidence that the red planet underwent a flood of biblical proportions billions of years ago. And another quote, seven years later. Mars may be incredibly dry and dusty today, and it is. But evidence continued to pile up that it was once a very watery world. Now the Curiosity rover has found signs of an ancient flood of biblical proportions. Most likely kicked off by a climate-changing asteroid impact. Now did you know that there is a geological system, an early time period on the planet Mars, characterized by high rates of meteorite and asteroid impacts and the possible presence of abundant surface water? And that surface water is actually called the Noahian, so after Noah. Strangely, and this is kind of curious, people deny there was a global flood on Earth. Yet they are quite happy to accept biblical proportion floods on Mars. So to appease to some of the skeptics, some Christians, have already said, argue that the flood that Genesis described may have been local. Now, does the Bible suggest that Noah's flood was indeed a local event? Well, let's go to the text, shall we? Genesis 7. All the high mountains under the whole earth were covered, and all flesh died, all swarming creatures, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land died. He blotted out every living thing. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. Now, how many more absolute statements do you want in the text for it to be clear? Let's focus on verse 19. That verse 19 says, All the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. How can it be local? Well, is this what a local flood looks like? If all the high mountains under the whole heaven are covered, that's not how water works. Water seeks its own level, doesn't it? So clearly this is not correct. Here are a few more absolute statements by God in his word. We read in Genesis 8.21, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Some more statements. Genesis 9, Then God said, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring and with every living creature, every beast of the earth, that never again shall all flesh be cut out by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature for all future generations. Now you may think that I, or rather the Bible, is very repetitive, and you're right. This is really important that people get this. My bow in the cloud shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
When the bow is seen in the clouds, my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So if people still have trouble believing the Bible, then what shall we make of this picture? See that rainbow? It reminds us God will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Really? My Christian college uh, college professor said Noah's flood was confined to the Middle East. So he believes God will never send another local flood? How many local floods have we had, even in recent years? I mentioned two, one in 1953, the other bigger in 2004. There have been many since, even in this very country. So if if Noah's flood was just local, then God didn't keep his promise. But Noah's flood was a global, worldwide event. And God doesn't break his promise. Now the New Testament epistle by Peter shows how the world was formed and then deluged or flooded. Let's read. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Note that it doesn't say part of it was formed and part of it was flooded. It's the whole thing. It was global. Now, it also compares between the first judgment, which was a watery one, and the one that is still to come, which is a fiery one, when Jesus returns. Do you think when Jesus returns to come and judge the world, it's just going to be a local judgment? Clearly not. It's a global thing. Every person alive on the whole world. So, likewise, Noah's flood was a global event. But these are examples from Scripture that should have driven the point home a few slides back already. But what about common sense? What to do if there is a tsunami threat? Well, I would suggest find a higher place to run to. What about if there is a local flood? Well, if you have time and chance, you move. So what about moving? What about relocation? In Genesis 6, every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds, according to their kinds, and of the animals, according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Why? Why did all these animals have to be put on the ark? Often, animals sense danger, especially from earthquake, long before people do. They could move, right? So did they move? Well, yes, initially. Animals that were not on board of the ark would have been moving away from the rising waters. A bit of a stampede, perhaps. They were all fearful of the water because it's not where most of the animals would live, and so they ran away. And such land animals too intuitively would move from rising water. There is evidence that they did. And we believe in dinosaurs, as Phil already showed. We believe that dinosaurs also went on the ark, as there were solid arguments for. Have you ever waded in a pool or a lake where you can barely touch the ground? You use your toes to get some grip and to keep moving forward, but at some point, if it's too deep, even your toes can't get a grip anymore. And if the ground is soft, like when you're in a pond or a sea, the sand might just scurry away and you can't get any good footing. But you could make a print in the ground. This is called a swim track. Now, there's a place in Australia called Lark Quarry. And there, three to 4,000 footprints were made over an area the size of a basketball court. The small tracks ranged from chicken-sized to emu-sized dinosaurs. Although some tracks look like tracks made in a terrestrial environment or in shallow water, many of the tracks are swim tracks. Many of the tracks 
had a large spacing for the size of the dinosaur, indicating that the dinosaurs were likely being taken with the current. So the current was sweeping them along. There's other evidence of dinosaurs fleeing from water in the USA. There's a dinosaur freeway, if you like, that has been discovered that stretches from northeast New Mexico, so that's the bottom left of the yellow uh, area there, to northwest Colorado. The tracks are generally of two types, uh, two types of dinosaurs, and found on multiple stratigraphic layers. So that's multiple of those layers that are laid on top of each other. But that supposedly span several million years, because that's what evolutionists thinking is. These layers are laid down over long periods of time. It doesn't seem reasonable that only two types of dinosaurs used this freeway if it was really a flood over several million years. You would expect way more different types. It's more reasonable, therefore, that dinosaurs found a linear strip of land during what? Global flood of Noah's time, with the sea level oscillating and sediments being deposited. Unusual stressful conditions are also indicated by the fact that practically all trackways are straight, so they're all pointing in the same direction. Uh, the fact that practically all dinosaur trackways are straight strongly favors animals desperately trying to escape some sort of catastrophe. And you can imagine what that was. That was the ensuing water, wasn't it? There are few, very few tracks of babies or juveniles, actually. There is nearly complete absence of tracks of these three, stegosaurs, ankylosaurs, and ceratopsians although they are certainly heavy enough to make tracks. These are weighty dinosaurs, and if they have uh, a ground that is kind of soft, they would definitely make an imprint. But their thick armor and large bony plates suggest that they were poor swimmers. These are really heavy, and so they might struggle to swim, and they would probably drown. Some of them of these would also walk with their head close to the ground. So if the water starts to rise, their head is first in, and so they would have to struggle to get their necks up. They did not do well escaping from the water. Now, if you're talking about water wading and swimming in water, more than 60 well-preserved footprints appear to show three sauropod dinosaurs. The sauropods are the ones with the long necks and the long tails that stretch out behind them to balance their heavy necks and heads and they are walking in water using their forelimbs only. The research team discussing these finds believes the layer was under water when the footprints were made. The layer directly above, which also filled the footprints, uh, showed ripple marks, the same ripple marks that you can find on the beach. These in turn must have been buried soon after to cement them in place, because ripple marks, if they're not protected, they'll be washed away and other ripple marks will form. The dinosaurs were wading in water up to their shoulders. So here you see a depiction, and uh, the man in the back has actually written about this. The sauropod body plan would force them to do handstands because their forelimbs were longer than their rear limbs, so their rear part was kind of lifted up by the water, and they tried to move forward. This explanation is actually the secular explanation. So the secular explanation is the non-Christian explanation, if you like, but it fits very well with the biblical perspective. Now, so much water, where did it all come from? It wasn't just your typical Scottish rain shower that usually comes in horizontally. No, we're going to read a little bit. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, notice how it gives the year and time and month and day. This is a historic event with a date. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. So water came from above, but also from below. That's what that means. And we all heard the saying, what goes up must come down. So if water is being spewed up as well, that also will start to fall down. So that will contribute to a lot of rain. Psalm 104, you covered it, which is the earth, with the deep as with the garment. The deep is the name for the world as created with water. And the water stood above the mountains. 
So where did all the water go? Well, let's read on. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they may not, might not again cover the earth. So where is it, all the water? You may ask, where did it all go? You remember that picture I showed of the little brown planet Mars and the quotes that I gave to you? Now look at this image of planet Earth. You still wonder where all the water is? It's right there. That blue stuff. Still here, the Pacific Ocean is being shown here, but we have more oceans. About 71% of the surface of the Earth is water. If you average the depth of the oceans, because they have different depths, some of them are really deep, others are more shallow, but if you make it all kind of the same depth, you get a depth of 2.7 kilometers, and if you level the mountains and the ocean floors, you would get the Earth with three kilometers of water around it. That's how deep the water is. The water is still here on Earth. Now, I said to you, is the Bible the only record of a big flood? Because that's, we've already seen the biblical text. And uh, this book is uh, one from the late Bill Cooper. And I want to talk to you a little bit about flood traditions from around the world. So here you see a diagram, a matrix, if you like. On the left-hand side, vertically, you see different components of Noah's flood. So man is in transgression. There's going to be a divine uh, destruction. The destruction will be by water, etc., Horizontally, going from left to right, you have different people groups uh, from all over the world. This is by no means an exhaustive list. There are many others, but otherwise the picture would become too big. I want to read to you a few, three accounts, starting with the Mandeans of southern Iraq. And the story goes like this. This is their story that they have in their legends. The creator warned Noah to build an ark because he was going to destroy the world with the great flood. All the mountains of the earth were submerged. Noah determined the waters abating by sending out a crow and a dove. Noah had three sons, Sam, Tam, and Japheth. Hmm. Let's move to the Maoris of New Zealand. They say that evil prevailed everywhere. Worship of the great god Tain, who had created man and woman, was neglected. Two people made a raft and prayed it might rain. But even after the rain had stopped, the floodwaters kept rising. They who came forth from the raft were the sole survivors of all the tribes of the earth. And then lastly, I want to read to you of the Greeks. The folk before the flood were exceedingly wicked and lawless. So the fountains of the deep were opened and the rain descended in torrents. The sea spread far over the land till there was nothing left but water. All men perished. But Deucalion survived. He had a great ark. And into it he entered with his wives and children. And as he was entering, there came to him land animals, all of them in pairs. And they all sailed in one ark, so long as the flood prevailed on the earth. You will have recognized many components that you know from your Bible. Yes, there are some details, some things that are different, particularly in names. Even the name for God is changed. The name for Noah sometimes is changed. But you recognize that this, this clearly is from the Bible. That's the central reference point. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, now, here is a summary of some of these components of biblical, uh, biblical flood of Noah. And you have percentages there of how often these occur in the accounts around the world. So this is a study by Dr. John Morris. So, for instance, take the top one. A favored family can be found in 88% of the accounts from all over the world. Um, and if you read about the warning of a coming flood, you find that in 66%. And so you can read through the list and see how often it occurs. Now, the 35%, there's an asterisk down the list of birds, could be seen as part of the 73%. So that's participation of animals. Birds are animals, so there might be a little bit of overlap. But John Morris took this list that you see here of components that he recognized in all these different accounts, and he rewrote the story using the study from other accounts from all over the world. And the story goes like this. 
Once there was a worldwide flood sent by God to judge the wickedness of man, but there was one righteous family which was forewarned of the coming flood. They built a boat on which they survived the flood along with the animals. As the flood ended, their boat landed on a high mountain from which they descended and repopulated the whole earth. Does that ring any bells? Basically, he reconstructed the biblical account by looking at what all these other accounts have very much in common. Now, these accounts are clearly based on the biblical narrative. Some changes made, granted, but they're still solidly uh, influenced or formed on the basis of the biblical account. We heard about a raft. We heard about an ark. So which is it? What image do you now have in your minds? Hopefully not the kind of image we see in many children's books that Phil already showed as well. Here's just a few examples. Even there is nothing to refer to in order to determine its size. The picture on the lower right I've kept in is fallacious. It is flawed. If the door here is 10 meters wide, so the door is that white rectangle there, that would be a very wide door, enough to get even the bigger animals through easily. But then the length of the ark is less than 70 meters. Is that correct? No, clearly not. What do we know about the real ark? Well, it was a huge vessel. The real uh, dimensions are given in Genesis 6, and it's given in cubits. A cubit is from the tip of your finger to your elbow, and clearly it can differ a little bit depending on whether you're a big person or a smaller person. Um, but you can, there's agreements to take certain length of a cubit, and then the dimensions are given here as approximately 135 meters long, 22 and a half meters wide, and 13 and a half meters tall. Or in volume, 40,000 cubic meters, which is 40 million liters. If you take a two-liter iron brew bottle, you would need to stash 20 million of those to fill up this huge vessel. Now, I like iron brew, but that's a lot of iron brew to drink. So here's a depiction of the ark with a truck for comparison there. So that's a, a big lorry truck. And in case you hadn't seen it, there's two people on the far right image to scale. So that's two people, two adult people. And it's still perhaps a bit overwhelming. So here's to scale made ark by a fellow countryman of mine called Johan Huybers. And note there is elephants and giraffes on deck to scale as well. So the elephant is actually pretty tiny, and although the long neck, the giraffe still is relatively a small animal. Here's another angle from his construction. There's a man standing on the dry dock to him. Small man compared to big boat, big ark. So we've spoken about a global flood with raging water traditions of the flood around the globe, huge ark to keep the survivors. What about those not on board the ark? Well, there's death. What evidence did you expect to see? Here, this is a trilobite fossil. You find them on the ocean floor. Well, you don't find them. They, they used to be ocean floor dwellers, and here's a whole bunch of these trilobites. Where do we find them? Well, we find them in layers. There are trilobites in the pink layer that you see there on the right-hand side of the screen. Uh, this is representing the geologic column. It's very simplified. It's cartoonish, but it gives you an idea. You've got layer upon layer upon layer. In those layers, you find dead things. And the trilobites are in the pictures, in the pink layer, I mean. Um, the reason why they're at the lower layer is not because they're hundreds of millions of years older. No, we would say they were bottom dwellers. They already lived near the bottom, and so they would be the first, among the first, to be buried. So they, uh, they are laid down, they are covered in these sedimentary layers. And where do we find such layers? Globally. Are they all over the world? Yep. Here's one in Hunston. That's how you pronounce that. It's a place on the east coast of England where the sun sets over the water. I'll let you contemplate that. You can ask me about it later. But here you see layers. Notice how these different colored layers are placed on top of each other. So if you look carefully, you can see a strip of dark 
brown or reddish and then a thicker layer of white or creamy. And there's a straight line that goes across with no signs of erosion. This flatness is very important. Let's together make a very flat surface. Perhaps we want to make a sports game. So we're going to leave it for one year, 10 years, or a lifetime after we've made it. How flat will it be? Well, that surface that we've made is going to be subject, perhaps, to vegetation. Animals walking on it, people walking on it. Nature, maybe some earthquakes is going to kick off after some time. What about volcanoes spewing out material? What about the wind and what about the rain? All these things will affect our surface, won't they? Some way or another. So how flat will things be if we leave this a long time? Now here we see a very flat plateau. Clearly this is Grand Canyon stuff. And you see a flat plateau indicated by the yellow line. You see that at the top there? It's, it's very flat. The layers that you see underneath, which are very typical of the Grand Canyon, they are also very flat and horizontal. But everything did not stay flat in the Grand Canyon, Grand Canyon indicated by the red lines. And I've drew just a few red lines. I'm not sure if you can see that very well, but it's very edgy and not so flat. So what are we to understand? That these layers build up slowly and horizontally but only after many, many layers are stacked on top of each other can erosion take place? Is that how it works? Is that what evolution demands us to believe? Are, you, are they saying that there is no erosion during all these millions of years? Because you can clearly see that these layers that is built up of are very, very flat. But yet where the surfaces are exposed, that's the red lines, you see very edgy and very eroded surfaces. Now, I would say, I would put to you, it makes a lot more sense that these layers were very quickly laid down in Noah's flood, which was a period of just over a year. And so the individual layers would be very flat, stacked on top of each other. But where they are exposed to the elements, now about 4,400 years ago, you see a lot of erosion. Let's, uh, let's look at other places around the world. And we're traveling north to Scotland. Yeah, see, when I wrote this, I did this in Leicester. So we don't have to travel north to Scotland. We are in Scotland. Sicker Point. Um, Sicker Point is, of course, famous for James Hutton and his description of uniformitarianism. There's a good Scrabble word for you. The present is the key to the past, is a sentence that he said. <coughs> Sorry. Notice how the layers are on an angle with one another. But where they meet, there is a straight line. So that's that yellow line again. And the layers are, some of them are going like this, and others are coming in like, well, like that. You can clearly see that they're on angles with each other. But there's a yellow, a, the yellow is the straight connection line. But also, notice the erosion along the top there. But the red line is indicated. There's quite a non-straight line there. Now we come to the Middle East, Petra. Uh, Jordan is east of Israel. That's over there. Petra is well known from the final scenes of the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, and noticed again those sedimentary layers that are just stacked like a flat pancake layer upon layer upon layer. But also notice again the erosion along the top. That's the surface that's exposed to the elements. The ones below, they're all looking nice and flat. Grand Canyon, we've already been there. Um, must be uh, in the list, of course. The state Arizona is also called the Grand Canyon State, for those who like to play Trivial Pursuit. And we continue to talk about the Grand Canyon in a while. Not for millions of years, don't worry. But here you see, again, a straight yellow line. But notice that I've drawn there, but amateurishly, a wavy red line. So these wavy uh, lines there at the bottom, did they stay nice and wavy over long periods of time, like we are asked to believe with evolution? Erosion would make them uneven and less wavy or more ugly, if you like, like we saw on the previous slides. Now, Globally, so these are just a few locations from around the world. They're not restricted to small areas. 
There's a neo-catastrophist uh, and anti-creationist, Mr. Derek Egger. He said in his book, The Nature of the Stratigraphical Record, the following. There are even more examples of very thin units that persist over fantastically large areas, e.g. the White Cliffs of Dover, which can be traced to, not just Dover, check this out, Northern Ireland, Northern France, Northern Germany, Southern Scandinavia, Poland, and Bulgaria, and Turkey, and Egypt. So that is one big chalky layer. Let's look at another example from Australia. Um, Australia compares roughly to continental USA in size, and what you see here is the Great Artesian Basin located on the eastern half of Down Under, so the right-hand side half. Its individual strata, uh, or sedimentary layers, include sandstone. They run continuously for 2,000 kilometers. Now, we briefly mentioned the USA, Grand Canyon, one of the layers in the Grand Canyon is called the Tapiz Sandstone. This sandstone runs continuously over a significant part of North America. And Dr. Andrew Snelling says it can even be traced across the Atlantic Ocean into northern Africa and southern Israel. The Tapiz Sandstone features also flat gaps. What's a flat gaps? A fancy word for it is an unconformity. Uh, an unconformity is when one or more layers are expected but not present. This missing layer represents a long time in evolutionary thinking. Wikipedia, source of all knowledge, puts it like this. An unconformity indicates that sediment deposition was not continuous. In general, the older layer was exposed to erosion for an interval of time before deposition of the younger layer. That's interesting. It was exposed to erosion. Now, where this handsome young man's hand is, called the Great Unconformity, there is a supposed time gap between the Cambrian Tapete sandstone and the underlying Precambrian rocks. This time gap represents about 500 million years, or half a billion years. Where this photo was taken, this is called an angular unconformity, as the layers above it and below it do not run parallel to one another. You can see that clearly here. So where the red line is, you see the layers above, they're horizontal or parallel to the red line, but the ones below are on an angle. So it's an angular unconformity. Yet, the line where they meet in the photo is very straight with little to no sign of half a billion years of erosion. But hang on, didn't we just read from Wikipedia, which is always right, that there must have been so much erosion that entire layers are missing? Why is this line, why is this contact surface so very, very straight? Doesn't make much sense. Now notice the flatness of this landscape and the sheer 90 degree drop of the cliffs. So you can see a very flat land in the background. The cliffs basically drop straight down. This is from the 12 Apostles, uh, Victoria, Australia. And here we read limestone cliffs created by constant erosion of the limestone cliffs of the mainland beginning 10 to 20 million years ago. Now, think about it. Creation by erosion. That's what it says, isn't it? These cliffs were created by constant erosion. So you create something by removing. That's an interesting statement in itself, in my opinion. But what sort of erosion are we talking about here, really, then? The rate of erosion at the base of the limestone pillars is approximately 2 centimeters per year. Now, 10 million years at 2 centimeters per year is about 200 kilometers. But isn't it amazing that this rock has withstood 10 million years and it is now eroded during our lifetime. 100 years is only 0.001% of 10 million years. Australia, going back there, approximately 4,000 kilometers wide. With such type of erosion that we've just read about, 10 million years ago, it must have been 400 kilometer wider. Or... 10% wider than what it is now. 
So at this rate, Australia will be gone in 100 million years. Fortunately, nobody there is worried about it because they'll be long gone. Let's look a little bit more at erosion by water. And now we're moving to New Zealand, the two sisters. Um, in the picture, you will see more than two here. There's a reason for that. These 10 million years, sorry, these 10 million year old mudstones are being continually eroded by the sea. There were four sisters at the turn of the century, but the sea is claiming them one at a time. Two sisters fell in 17 years. 17 years is 0.00017% of 10 million years. We are very privileged and special that we get to witness these portions of rocks falling into the sea, finally collapsing, collapsing after such long ages. Or perhaps the ages are not correct that they are given. Let's go back to Australia, London Bridge. Victoria, a double natural archway indicated by the yellow arrow that you see there in limestone. On 15 January 1990, the inner arch collapsed, stranding two tourists. And now it is called the London Arch because there is no longer a bridge. Um, Admire natural arches from a distance, says the Geoscience website, unless you think they are safe. Even then, only spend a short time near the arch. Now, think about that, that statement there. Only spend a short time. Why would a few minutes matter if this whole thing has been standing for 10 million years? Shouldn't that make them think that maybe these things are not that old? Why are they all collapsing in our lifetime? John Morris at present erosion rates, all the continents would be reduced to sea level in 14 million years. Think about that. All the continents, all the landmass would be reduced to sea level in 14 million years if the erosion continues, has been going on like it has now. But yet, these continents are thought to be many, many times that. Were they many times greater in bulk when they were uplifted? I.e., were they way larger before that we didn't notice and we're now just looking at the, the thin, thin pieces left? No, he says, because rocks thought to be on the surface at the time of the uplift, so when the continents were raised up, are still on the surface. So the top of these layers is still the same. That hasn't eroded down. We've hardly been eroded at all. So the present, is it truly the key to the past? It was James Hutton who said that. To argue this way would be akin to having your cake and eating it. How so? Andrew Snelling says, calculated sedimentation rates over a time span of one million years average about 0.01 meter per thousand years. That's one centimeter every thousand years. That's the calculated uh, sedimentation rates. The average sedimentation rate actually measured, remember that Phil spoke about empirical science and operational science, so what we're measuring today over a period of one year is approximately 100 meters per 1,000 years. So 100 meters versus 0.01, that is a factor 10,000 difference from what they calculate to what they actually measure. They want you to believe what they calculate because that's their evolutionary narrative, but when you go and actually do measurements, it's 10,000 times out. Because they have this slow rate that's extrapolated into the long distant time, evolution needs the millions of years. Sounds like circular reasoning to me. Smounts in Helens, eight meters of sedimentary ash layers were laid down in three hours in 1980. And here you see a picture that a mud flow carved a canyon through these layers. Lots of water and energy happened here. And this canyon is actually called Little Grand Canyon, carved within a day. So the layers were laid down in an afternoon, three hours, 1980. And then a canyon was formed two years later, also within a day. 
And this canyon is about 45 meters deep. Now imagine that I hadn't told you this and I would send you on a field trip to go and do your studies there and you would have some secular scientists with you that believe in evolution. They would tell you quite an interesting story perhaps how this would have been laid down over thousands and thousands, maybe millions of years. Two afternoons and Cyprian dates. Now we just spoke about sedimentation rates from Dr. Snelling. Uh, sediments accumulate making horizontal layers. But layers did not form vertically, do they? Layers form flat. That's how gravity works. They don't form like this. So does stone bend, do you think? Can we bend stone? Or is it too brittle if you try to bend it? I would say it is. You need to bend it while it is still soft. Now the Bible speaks about a worldwide flood lasting just over a year. It explains many things, including rock layers bend over about 90 degree angles. All layers have to be soft. So you see they're layer upon layer, and they go through this bend of an angle of approximately 90 degrees. Soft layers can bend if they're clay, if they're soft. But if it's hard, it's brittle. You need all the layers to be soft. So if you have millions of years of drying out, things would get hard and cemented in. So these layers were all quickly laid down and bent long after. To give you an idea of size of what you just saw there, which was in the Tapit Sandstone in Carbon Canyon, here are the vertical layers, and there's pictures of uh, people in that um, to give you an idea of the size. Now, the man on the ground did not trip. He was trying to get the vertical layers in the picture because it actually is quite sizable. You can see stack several human beings, how they go up like that. Now, here's some folded gyp rock, uh, which is a castile formation. Um, you see for yourself these pictures where there are 90 degrees bends like that. Folded rocks in Penhold Cliff, just to the east of Millock in Cornwall. Other ones that are bent. And this is in Dublin, uh, Lost Shiny. I probably mispronounced that. So I've talked about many of these things that are very easily explained by Noah's global flood, but not well explained at all by evolutionary long-time thinking. But we have to come back to ultimately what is the most important, and that was that question. These periods of time, millions of years that evolution require filled of death, is that what the Bible teaches? I hope that the answer is clear now, that clearly the Bible says something different. Creation was very good. It was Adam's sin that led to death. So we've looked at these flood, uh, this terrible global judgment by Noah's flood. Now Jesus has warned, and I already alluded to that, about another global judgment. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Clearly there is nothing wrong with eating, drinking, and marriage. The problem here is that people were unaware of the danger. And Noah was a herald of righteousness or a preacher of righteousness. But how many people went onto the ark? Only the eight. So many people ignored it, were too busy with other things, didn't pay attention, and they were swept away. And so it's going to be with the second coming. As a church, we have a mission. So those who went through the door of the ark, they were saved from the flood. And people can get access to God through Jesus. Jesus again said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So he compares himself in a way that if you go through the door of the ark, those eight were saved. If you go through Jesus, who is the door, you can be saved. You will be saved because he's infinitely capable of saving people. So concluding then, Jesus himself validates the historicity of Noah's flood by comparing the second and the first global judgments. The first one was global, but the, and it, so is the judgment to come. We must enter through the door, and there is the door of the ark. So we must enter 
through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Do it before it's too late. And perhaps I'm preaching to the converted here, but there's many people out there that haven't done that yet. So I just want to point out a few resources. Uh, Noah's Flood, How Noah's Flood Shaped the Earth by Mike Ord. Mike Ord is very much into geology, uh, Ice Age, and this is a great book, How Noah's Flood Really Made an Impact. We got a DVD of Philip Bell, Let the Rocks Speak, um, and we've got a Creation Answers book that gives you up to 60 questions answered of creationists asked. But I'm going to end here, and I'm going to say, do you have any questions now for me? And I would be happy to try and answer them. This is where I take my sip of water, usually to give you a second to think. Yes? Yes, the flood, uh, the 40 days would be the, the rains falling, um, but the water continued to rise still. Uh, and at some point, I'm not sure if it was about 150 days, it would peak and then start to abate, persuade. So the 40 days would be really the water coming from above from the rain. Mabul, yeah. Right. Because it's, it says, as I said, it gives you the date when it started, and, and there's different time zones. You add up a few components. So, um, But yeah, that, that Mabu is a, a section of a, a bigger thing, so to speak. So, yeah, there is something that's 40 days, but there are other things, and it was about a year later, I think 370 days, when the ark was vacated. Was, yeah, when the ark was vacated, yeah. I think there's some things in there that are worth looking at. Riding down the hall, and then the waters of the flood are introduced to the hall. Yeah. And that has implications how we can handle this section now. So what's the implications now? It's like once a year for that whole 40 or 60 days. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I thought that with, with the absolutes of the passages that I gave, it would be clear that, that God says, I will never again flood the entire world. Um, and so, you, yeah, you take the whole scripture together. If you, yeah, indeed focus on just one section and you don't look into what Mabu means, for instance, you, you could get a little bit, you're missing information, you're missing bits and pieces. Any other comments, questions? Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so there was tectonic activity. There was, uh, I think I read the Psalm 104, where there was the valleys were lowered and the mountains were raised. So there was things going on up and down. And so if uh, layers would have already been laid down throughout the flood, with the, the sweeping waves going across the whole planet, more layers on top of each other, and then tectonic activity would have moved things in opposite direction. Compression could also happen, or traction. No, I think up and down would also work. Because if you, if you do it that, it would, yeah, it could go up in the middle, but if you, yeah, so I think there's different things that can go on. Um, but we'll have to read Geology 101, which will come in next week, hopefully. Okay, I think we'll close off there. Um, Phil and I will still have a few books out there if you wish to chat or talk or look. Um, but thanks for your attention. God bless.